Check one, check one, two, three. Hey everybody, it's Michael Helms, also known as Michael the Sound Guy, and this is the Location Sound Podcast. You know, each episode we talk with location sound mixers, boom ops, and other industry pros about the various aspects of recording sound on location, whether it's for feature and independent films, TV commercials, interviews, any time where dialogue from actors is recorded. I started my career in the recording studios in New York City with some of the big artists back in the day, and later on projects for networks like HBO, Sci-Fi Channel, and the Cartoon Network. As time went by, I got out of the studio and began working in production sound. Whether you're a seasoned veteran or just starting out, thanks for joining us. My guest today is production sound mixer and boom op based out of the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Texas. Please welcome Ferris Shaheen. Hi, how's it going? We're doing good. Now, Ferris, you know, if you've heard the show before, we always like to start off by asking, when you're working as a location sound mixer, what's in your basic audio kit? And that's just a rundown from your mics to mixer to power distribution and everything in between. So I run the Sound Devices 688, uh, and I have all the bells and whistles that go with it. So the SO6 and the CL6, I believe. And I like that because it's cable free. My dad is an IT guy, so cable management's kind of a thing. And then shotgun wise, I have a couple different ones. I have the Shep Seamit, the Sankin CS3, and of course the 416 because the 416. I've been leaning more towards using the CS3 lately though, because it matches well with the uh, cost 11s that I use. Okay. And uh, electrosonics wireless. What, what block are you running on electrosonics? I've got, so I've got the SRCs. Okay. Um, so I have one A block, one B block, or A band, one B band, and one C band. So I have to, going to have to lose the C band. Mm. So I'm kind of all over the spectrum. That's good. You got it covered. You got it spread out. Yeah, that was, that was the goal. Since the super slot, I had the three spots. I figured it'd be easier to just spread it out. Um, of course, that was before all of the FCC stuff. So I have to kind of adjust for that. All right. What kind of bag do you use? I originally used the Orca 34 or 34, I believe, but a couple months ago I switched to the uh, Stingray, and I've been enjoying it. It's I mean they're both really solid bags. Um, the Stingray is a little bit more slimmer in the fr- on the front end, um, which I find has helped me kind of squeeze into tighter spots. Time code? What kind of time code do you use? I've got the Time Code Buddy the TRX and some RXs, and then I have a couple of tentacle sinks. All right, cool. So you've been pretty happy you've been with that kit for a while? A couple of years now, yeah. Pretty happy with it. So what are the main projects you usually work on? I'm kind of all over the place, honestly. I've done some indie features, done some TV stuff, corporate, short films. I haven't really kind of locked into a single spot yet, which is why having a bag that's so versatile has helped because I can kind of jump between the different avenues pretty quickly and easily. And, and right, you can mix with that whole bag set up and put it down, put the console down and do that. And then you can, you know, then you're wearing it as well. So that's great. Yeah. Now I was checking out your, your IMDB account. You did uh, some production sound mixing on Puppet Master, the littlest Reich. Yes, I was a second unit mixer on that. Tell us a little bit about the, that experience. Uh, so the, there's a company in Dallas called Sinistate. Um, they've been 
popping up more and more lately with all their stuff. And I knew a couple of the higher ups from school. So they started doing production on Puppet Master and then the need for a second unit arised. So they shot me an email and were like, hey, we need you to come and mix. And so it was, I think they had a three week long shooting period total. So I came in the last three days of it. So everybody was kind of worn out um, and it was all puppet effects and things like that. So it was really cool to see practical effects because I hadn't really worked with practical effects before. And I think they all turned out pretty great. So from what I heard, it was all production audio, which is obviously the goal. So it was a really fun experience. So what did they do? Just you kind of mic up or get the mics down by the puppets kind of a thing and they're kind of bouncing them around, things like that? We had a couple scenes with actors with dialogue. So obviously, you know, boom and, and wires. And then for the more bloodier stuff, because there was a lot of bloody stuff, uh, we would just run a boom. So I used the uh, 416 on that to match uh, first unit. Yeah, that's kind of, sounds kind of fun. Was there anything that was like a big learning experience for you on set? I had, well, I guess communication. I had one just kind of double checking everything. So I had one moment we were doing a pretty long scene where it's like puppet pops up, jumps down, kind of screws around. So it was a really long kind of tracking dolly, easy jib kind of shot. So I was talking to the producer who was serving as AD. And I was like, hey, so I'm just going to run a boom on this. You know, so I'm going to go consult kind of where the best place to stand is to stay out of the shot because there's a lot of moving parts. Um, and the actress is just screaming, so I don't have to get super close in there. I can kind of hang back a little bit and the levels will be good. So I kind of find a spot in the corner. I'm all set up. I'm, you know, pretty bunched up in the corner, not a lot of movement room. And then they yell, you know, real camera, real sound. And then I hear from the other room, oh, it's MOS. And I was in a pretty uncomfortable position. So it's like, well, okay, I'm just going to roll on it because I'm here. And it took some doing to get into the position that I was in. So it just kind of reinforced, you know, just double check everything. Because even if they say it at one point, as you're kind of talking through what the scene is, they might decide, oh, well, we're not actually going to use it. It's all going to be you know, Foley effects or just an ambience. Um, so that kind of solidified that helped me later on. I, I think it's the same thing. I'm always, you know, running around. We're doing, oh yeah, and there's no sound on this. Like what? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, where was it shot? Where'd they shoot all uh, It was shot all in Dallas. We shot at the Ambassador Hotel, I think was their main location for most of it, which they enjoyed because they're going to, I guess, do renovations on it. So they were essentially given full reign to do whatever they wanted because it's all getting torn down and, and fixed. So there are rooms to this day that are just covered in blood. And, you know, we at one point essentially lit a room on fire um, oh, gosh. on purpose. But they just, yeah, the owners were cool with it. So they just had a blast. That's interesting for sure. Okay, I was also checking out, you had you were working on the standoff at Sparrow Creek. Yes. And you were a boom up on that? I was. So that was also Cinestate. That is premiering at uh, TIFF next month, actually, we found out, which is really exciting. Yeah, so that one's kind of a drama. It's based, I don't obviously don't want to give too much away since it's not out yet, but it's kind of like a militia group 
and they find out one of their guys was involved in a shooting. So they're trying to figure out who it was. And it's this whole kind of who done it, who was responsible. So that was also shot in Dallas. We shot in this warehouse for, we had a, a three week shooting period, 19 days, about a week and a half of it was shot in this warehouse. You know, we shot with two cameras sometimes and every time we weren't, it was all a 14 lens or a 24. So it was all pretty, pretty wide. There were several points where I was standing on top of a 12 foot ladder just to stay out of the shot. Oh, wow. Yeah, but it was, it was a lot of fun. It was a solid crew. We had, our DP was from LA, a guy named Jackson Hunt. It was his first feature. So, I mean, they all did really well and I guess it, paid off because it's going to Toronto, which is really cool. Yeah. When you're, you know, doing those, those wide shots, that's always the challenge. Cause it's like, and we're always talking about that. Sometimes it just, it kills the boom sometimes because you're what you're 10 yeah. feet off the, off their head basically. Right. Right out of college. I did a movie called warning shot that's coming out next month. I worked on it for a couple of days as boom operator, um, out in Corsicana, Texas. And the very first day of shooting, we had a similar setup. We were shooting two cameras and they did the wide and the close-up at the same time. And I wasn't, I hadn't boomed extensive scenes like that before, really. You know, I'd only done short film work, so it was pretty short and sweet takes. But this whole scene was the main actress and her daughter drive up in a car, get out of the car, walk up to a gravestone have a couple of minutes of dialogue at the gravestone and then walk back to the car and drive out. And that was the whole take. And to stay out of the wide, I had to be fully extended, essentially standing next to B cam on my tiptoes, arms as high as I can get them in the air. So that was a challenge, but you know, you look back on it and you watch it and you're like, I'm standing right there off screen and nobody knows that, you know? Um, so it was a lot of fun, but obviously really challenging. And, and how long was the scene? Probably like, what, 10 minutes or something? You're... Yeah, probably eight or nine minutes. And we had one of those in uh, Sparrow Creek as well, where I, this was like day two of the 19 days. I was standing on an Apple box, New York style, which is kind of my go-to. Now for our listeners that don't know, what's New York style? Uh, it's vertical. So kind of straight up gives me more height. I'm not super tall. I'm about five, seven. So sometimes I need a little bit more, more room, um, to get up there. And so we were doing this whole scene and because it was all wide shots, it helped me kind of stay out of, this was only a single cam, but it helped me stay out of the way. But that whole scene was 10 minute takes following the actor as he walked across the room and it was really low ceiling. I remember we finished, I think, the second take of it. I want to say we did six or seven total in in a row. And the first AC, who's a friend of mine, just looked up at me and he was like, man, mad props, because I could not do that. Um, but I was certainly feeling it after a couple takes because, you know, that's that takes a toll. But again, it was a lot of fun. And it I enjoy moments like that just because it gives you that challenge and it kind of you know, you have those kind of bragging rights after where you're like, Hey, I just did this. Like, you know, everything else is easy now. Oh, that's cool. Do you remember what mic you were using? What boom mic? 
Uh, that was a 416 as well. Um, the sound mixer that Cinestate uses, a guy named Brian Hackett runs the 416 almost exclusively. So That's cool. That sounds like a, a lot of fun. So you did some, you've done a bunch of stuff inside and in like a soundstage type situation and then outside in the field and at a cemetery and all that. So where birds, crazy outside noises, any issues like that? Sometimes, yeah. Um, occasionally we get lucky and the birds are relatively quiet to where they're just kind of a nice little ambience and they're not too distracting. I just mixed a feature back in May where the very last scene of the film we were shooting in a cemetery, a different cemetery, and they had not really location scouted beforehand, or at least I had not seen the location beforehand. And when we got there, we were right next to a highway and there was a fountain and just a lot of extra noise. And it was like, okay, guys, you know, really, you, you couldn't have at least warned me about this beforehand. So I did, you know, you do the best that you can. And then I made sure to kind of go to a quieter spot and get some wild lines so that they had some options to layer in. But outside shots are not always fun. <laughs> So far, what, what's been the most interesting project you've done? So I do some TV stuff for a company called AMS Pictures here in Dallas. They do, um, on the Reels channel, Murder Made Me Famous and Scandal Made Me Famous. So those are kind of interesting to see. They have, we, the episode that airs this Saturday actually was my first one for mixing. I'm normally just the A2 on that. Um, but we did uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, which was a lot of fun just because you have to recreate all of that and you know you kind of learn more about the characters um but it's really cool to just kind of see the recrees that they come up with because they've covered people from Dahmer all the way to Jack the Ripper was one of their recent ones so they had to recreate you know that old school London feel and they pull it off and it looks great so those are always really fun uh, so, yeah that sounds cool so we always have to ask too what was your worst onset experience I worked a production where they decided to roll on takes when I wasn't there. Takes with dialogue. I don't know why. That was never explained. Um, but obviously, when I found out, my boom op kind of was like, hey, this just happened. And I he was a newer boom op, so he didn't really know how to handle it. So he just kind of told me. So I just went to them and I was like, no, that's not how we run things. Because this is dialogue and nobody's here to monitor that. So I don't know why you would even think of doing that. You know, we got through it and the final product looks and sounds really good, but you kind of have those tense moments on set where you're like, I know we've been shooting for a few weeks in a row, but there's a system for a reason. So was the boom op recording or? Yeah, he, he was essentially instructed to hit record on the mixer and just kind of boom it but so he could hear the boom but you know he had no way of looking at levels or anything like that and it was a scene with some pretty important dialogue so when i found out i wasn't too happy about it yeah sometimes weird stuff happens i i worked on a project recently and you know i'm i'm monitoring audio i'm recording i've got headphones on but nobody else does and it was like, don't, don't you want to hear <laughs> what, yeah. we're, what yeah. we're getting? The, I mean, the director what, didn't seem to be interested, you know? No, I'm just, I just thought that was the weirdest thing. So 
you know, they just trust that you're getting it. And I, I really like for them to, to be able to listen and be happy as well. So for sure. Well, and especially on things like features, you know, when you don't get a lot of breaks, you do get some ear fatigue if you're not careful. So having extra ears, you know, obviously you want to say that you're going to catch everything, but if you go so many days in a row, a little thing might slip through. Whereas if the director or, or producer or somebody else is monitoring it, they can be like, wait, I think I heard something. And you're like, okay, let's do it again just to be safe. Exactly. Yeah. I had the, another project. I was like, I, what I was doing, I was, I was trying to keep the tracks clean and I would, you know, disarm certain channels um, when I, when I wasn't using them. And I forgot to, to arm it when I, when we started a new take and, I could, you know, it was still, I had a, a wireless hop going to the camera, so they were getting the mix, but I wasn't recording it. So at least it was going there, but I was just like, oh. I've definitely been there. I actually, I did one um, really quick fix every now and then. So I, I tend to only run a mono mix just because that kind of helps me focus on the mix more if I don't have that extra channel, unless, of course, I'm asked to do a stereo. So on this one project, it actually ended up saving me I, I had a stereo mix going, so I didn't have one of the ISOs going, and they really only cared about the ISOs. So I was able to split the track. So I was able to make one of the channels of the mix track just be the ISO for the track that wasn't recording. So I was able to kind of save it really quickly, because obviously once you hit record, you can't arm another track. But I was able to kind of shift it to where while it was recording, it became a, an ISO track. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. The things that we're, you know, we're, we're jumping around, we're tweaking, we're doing all that. And people have no idea what we're, what we're changing over there and how we're trying to like salvage things. And it's true. Well, tell me your biggest technical challenge on set. I it's honestly, it's RF it's, it's wireless. I did a gig where this was the first time I had ever decided, oh, I'm only going to pack for the gig. I'm not going to bring all of my stuff. I'm not going to do that. And it was like a five-person kind of roundtable interview. We were shooting in downtown Dallas, and the location hadn't been looked at beforehand. It was an Airbnb that the client had just picked up a couple, you know, a day or so before. So we get there, and I had a boom, and then I had the five wireless and I started scanning frequencies to see what was clean. And there was nothing, essentially nothing was clean. Everything was was packed because we were right near City Hall and right by, you know, Dallas PD. So they were using up everything to where even just being in the same room as the actors, I was barely getting a feed. And I just kind of, you know, tried so hard to, to think of different things, but obviously if the wireless frequencies are full, unless you have a hard wire, you can't really combat that. Um, you can't run down to city hall and be like, Hey, stop using this frequency block. I need it because it doesn't work that way. So I just looked at the director and I was like, Hey, this is what's happening. I'm going to try to do this, but there's no guarantee that it's going to work. So that ended up being really bad. But from that point on, it was like, okay, I'm always going to have all of my stuff with me because had I had all my stuff, I could have maybe threw three or four other mics on C stands or something, you know, used the shotguns that I have and tried to just do it that way. But I didn't have them at the time. So I was stuck. 
Yeah, it's so strange because I go through these phases where I'm like, bring everything. And I bring everything. And you do it over and over again and you never use it. And then the one day you're like, ah, you know, I haven't been using that. And you don't bring it, then you need it. And it's like, it's a lesson. It's just bring everything all the time. Just- exactly. <laughs> I'd much rather have it and just pack it to where I have kind of an immediate case of this is everything I know for sure I'm going to use. And I take that out of my car and then I leave everything else. And then if I need it, I'm like, okay, let me run back to my car real quick because I know it's in there. But yeah, I've been do- I've been doing the same thing. Just leave yeah. it in the car so it's close by, but you got it. So um, have you ever forgotten anything when you're on your way to a gig? I have, <laughs> which is partly why I started the you know, bring everything, absolutely everything. And I, I mean, there are still times it's, it's been something as little as, you know, extra transport tape or a couple of times I've forgotten a boom pole or my harness. I had one gig, one of my, well, this was very early on when I first started, it was one of my first gigs. My mount for my boom pole actually broke in my car on the way to location and I didn't have another one. And it was like an ENG style gig. So I was only running a boom and I was just kind of like, I don't know what to do. And he was like, it's okay, I have one. So luckily the camera guy had one, but I always have extras of every little thing now, just in case, because you can never be too careful. Um, But yes, I've certainly forgotten things before. And I'm just, I'm very upfront about it. You know, if I forget something, if I can't go back and get it or have somebody go and get it, I'm just like, look, this is on me. I'm going to make it work. But I just wanted to let you know that this is what's happening. That's that's good. That's yeah. And the same thing, I keep hearing that a lot, too. You know, most most, you know, the camera department has a bunch of redundant stuff. Usually, you know, a couple of guys have forgotten their boom pole. Some people have forgotten their shotgun mics. And and the fact that, you know, everybody has, you know, may not be you know, the top notch that you want to use, but you've got a, you know, a loan or a replacement you can use right there on set. Yeah. So I try to always keep extras now. Just better to have it. Plus it, it, yeah, it just, I mean, it helps too, because I know there are definitely moments where I'm like, well, maybe this mount would work better than that one in terms of space or size. I know indoors, I like to run the, the CMC just for its smaller handle. So I have a mount for that, that kind of helps reduce in the case of like low ceilings, um, it helps me kind of not bump into anything. Your CMIT experience, has everything been pretty good? Have you ever had any of the you know humidity issues? I haven't yet, knock on wood, um, but I've certainly heard stories. So I'm always kind of overly cautious. Anytime I get any sort of rain warning, I'm like, okay, like maybe switch it out for today or maybe, you know, not use it or make sure it's completely covered up. You know, I've heard that as long as you let it dry 90% of the time, it's fine, but I don't want to risk it. So if I ever have to use it, anytime I get a sense of excessive moisture or humidity, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to use that mic today. What lav mics do you use? I've got uh, Sankin COS 11s and I have Countryman B6s, but honestly, I haven't used the B6s in a while. I've been pretty consistent with the Sankins. I just, I think I I love the sound of both of them. And obviously I love the size of the B6s, but I think the Sankin, the wire is very good at handling noise. Whereas the B6, I pick up a lot of scratching on the actual cable itself. 
but the the Sankins, I don't have that issue. I'm thinking about trying out the DPA mics because I've heard really good stuff about that, um, but I haven't had a chance to use those yet. Okay. Do you uh, do you have any specific expendables that you like to use when you're using your lav mics? So I use the the RM11s that come with the Sankins, and then I'll use Transpore. If I'm hiding it behind like a button, I'll use like Joe Sticky stuff, things like that. Um, Transport is pretty much my go-to though. I've had a lot of success with that. For a long time, I didn't use the RM11s and I started using them and I used uh, some Rycoat Stickies and they stayed on the clothes all day long. And we walked, we had multiple, I think we had eight scenes that we were shooting and uh, I was like really impressed that, that everything hung in there for the whole day. So Yeah, I, I used the this ride coat stickies too. When I have them, I'm really bad about picking them up when I run out because they just tend to go fast. But yeah, I mean, as long as you set the RM11, you know, it might take a couple tries depending on the fabric. They're pretty, it's pretty solid and does a good job of, you know, keeping a space between the clothes and the mic. Yeah. I'm always amazed, you know, sometimes you mic people up and it's perfect. It's quiet. And other days it looks like the same material. Everything is, you do the same routine and it just, all you hear is rustle and you're constantly adjusting until you have to switch and do something else. But it is an interesting uh, experience doing that. It's funny. I get frustrated sometimes. My roommate is also a film guy. So we do some of the like student life and housing videos for SMU and all of, you know, it's all just interviews and B-roll. So all of their interviews, I have to hide the mics. He wants me to hide the mics. But anytime I see any sort of video that's similar, you know, they're just clipped on right there. And I'm like, man, why can't I just do that? You know, but then at the end of the day, I'm like, all right, because I'm getting better at hiding them. So I guess it pays off. But, but I haven't yet worked a gig where they've just let me clip it on. Yeah, it's 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 interesting because I yeah, same thing. It's like you know, most of the time it's like if it's if it's a known interview kind of situation, everybody's cool with the clip on. But but yeah, then you have other people like no no, we need to hide that. So it just I guess it just varies. Yeah. Now regarding backups, how long do you keep your backups? So I have a hard drive and then I have Dropbox, and I'll usually kind of keep them essentially indefinitely. Luckily, audio doesn't take up as much space as video, so you can kind of get away with that. I've actually had it come back to save a couple of projects that, you know, a year later they were looking for the original audio because whoever they sent it off to do in post, they kind of did too much and they didn't make a copy before they did it. Um, so they wanted to kind of go back and have the original files to see like what the starting point was. And I was able to say like, here, here's a Dropbox link. So I'll typically go put them all on my Dropbox. And then when I hit the end of the year, I'll just kind of archive everything for the year and throw that on a hard drive. This way it's kind of a nice little package. Okay. Yeah, I was working on a project recently and we were, we would shoot and then we were, we were transferring files right there and everything was done. I left and then I get this text that the, the system crashed they lost a bunch of stuff so i just yeah i put it in dropbox sent them a link I, I just sent them everything and uh so at least my part was was complete yeah and i'll do that even if you know even if we copy stuff at the end of the day i'll just be like hey part of my practice is that i just throw it all on dropbox and i send you a link so you have it just in case because you can never have too many backups. And I think a lot of some clients are surprised when I say that, 
but to me it's surprising that you wouldn't do that just because they're your files i mean one it's a matter of like it kind of documents the different projects you've worked on but also if they need them then you you have them and you know you can be a hero if you have them yeah there's a lot of people i guess because it's the payment issue they're they're concerned i guess if you give them all that but i mean most of the time you know, people are, you know, there is that percentage where people try not to pay. But for the most part, you know, like you said, you have to make that, we have to make that judgment call of are these, are these good people? So but speaking of like payment and freelance and things like that, do you, do you have any practices when it comes to say like getting a deposit or, or money up front when you're working on a project? I haven't yet. Um, I've definitely, obviously listening to the podcast, I've heard you talk about that with some other people um i've been lucky enough to not have to worry about that yet but kind of after hearing it more and more i'm starting to rethink if you know if it's a newer client or if i don't know them very well um maybe getting some sort of deposit but i haven't done that yet no yeah the past i'm gonna say i had a I had one client it was net 60 and and then, of course, nothing, no payment shows up. And I'm like, oh, man. So, you know, you, you end up, you're chasing that, that money. And, and they paid, but it was like, oh, oh, yeah. Oh, you didn't get that check? Let me, let me check with accounting. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, that, that went out, you know. And then two weeks later, it shows up. And so you get little things like that. And then I, you know, I started setting up a, or I had set up a PayPal account. And, and they're like, you know, I, I just go and have them, you know, send it PayPal. And that's like immediate, you know, with a, with a slight percentage for PayPal, but you get your money right away. And so that's been pretty helpful too. So a couple of times it was like, you want to check or do you want it? It's like, ah, go ahead and use the PayPal. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So regarding freelance, um, do you have any freelance tips when you're looking for a new job? So I was like, I went to college for film. So that kind of helped me because I was able to meet people in the Dallas film community. So definitely get involved in your local film community and reach out to people and go to events. You never know where a job is going to come from and they don't necessarily have to be a camera person or a sound person to get you a job. It can be a local business or it can be an actor that starts working on a production. They're like, hey, we need X, Y, and Z position. Well, I know a handful of people here, their info. So just kind of get to know all of them and then also just, you know, be polite and be a nice person to work with, you know, put in the effort. They always would tell us in film school, it's who you know. And we were always like, no, like that's not true. But it kind of is to a degree. But one of the things that we've kind of, or that I've kind of picked up on is it's like, you don't have to be the absolute best at what you do. Everybody's going to make mistakes. Everybody's going to have those off days. But if you're a fun person to work with and you help out when you can, and you're not just in it for yourself, people will call you more because they're willing to work with you. So even if you do have that gig, so for example, that gig that I did, the five-person interview that ended up being terrible, I still work with that client today because they understood that I was very upfront with them and that you know, I tried to pick up the slack and I tried to help them out later on and with the post fixing. And you know, they said I was just, I had a good work ethic. So they were still willing to work with me even though I had the one bad day. So just be good to work with and get involved in your local community and that'll help you find jobs. I actually, uh, I, I had a friend that uh, they were putting together the 48 hour film project. And he said, he called me up and said, do you, do you, would you do sound for us? And I'm like, oh, 
you know, those, those can be, you know, exhausting. Mm -hmm. And I ended up doing that and it was good. You know, I went, I had a good time. Um, You know, it's always, you always learn something. It's always a little educational. And plus you're able to pass on, there were a lot of students there. So I was able to share some, some of my personal experience and everybody seemed to be real receptive. And, you know, one of the actors that was involved, he's a, you know, a SAG actor and he, he's writing and directing and starring in a pilot. And he said, Hey, you know, would you mind helping us with, you know, some, so it turned into some other projects, you know? So it really, it really is about the networking, just, you know, meeting everybody, you know, you're, you're there, you're micing them up, you have chances to talk and, and kind of get to know people on set. So it's, it's really important to do that. For sure. You're out in Texas. It gets really hot. Have you ever had any equipment malfunctions? Yes. Sweat damage is not my friend. I actually, I have one mic right now that I have to send in uh, one of my wireless and I almost lost another one. We had a a weekend a few weeks ago where it was 110 degrees outside. And of course they decided that on the 110 degree day, we're only going to shoot outside. And I had kind of it had been a while since I'd had to deal with sweat damage or sweat in general because I was so used to shooting indoors that I had kind of forgotten to get necessary supplies for protection. And then sure enough, one of my transmitters just started to to crack and, and pop and hiss and it just died. And I was like, oh, great. So I immediately threw it into a cup of rice and let it sit for a few days and I was able to salvage it. But another one of mine was not so lucky. So sweat damage is huge especially in the summer here, I asked people online, typically what we would do is just use like a condom because that helps. But I saw some people will use like smaller little plastic baggies or somebody else, I can't remember his name, said like baby socks are really good. So I thought that was interesting. I haven't shot outside since then to be able to try anything out. But but yeah, sweat damage is big. So you're protecting your mic and you're protecting the transmitter. The mic is relatively okay. It's mainly the transmitters, especially depending on where you mic them, it'll just pick up sweat really quickly. And it doesn't help that they're already hot enough because of batteries. So, All right. Well, if some of our listeners were interested in getting into location sound, what would your recommendation be? You know, I went to school for film, but I didn't necessarily go to school for location sound. They didn't really have a lot of topics on location sound. It was mainly post. So I just kind of went online and read a bunch of books. And there's one called, I believe it's uh, the Location Sound Bible by Rick Veers, I believe was a really good one for kind of basic audio stuff um, in terms of location. And then just kind of start working on student sets and, you know, work in the environments where you're allowed to make the mistakes without it being career threatening. You know, one of the pluses of that was I was my school's sound guy because nobody else was really interested in sound. So I was able to work on multiple sets throughout the year and kind of get that experience and, and build those little tricks of like, if I put the mic on this way, I get a lot of rustling. But if I do it this way, it sounds really clear. You kind of pick up on those little tricks the more you do it. So just kind of start to get involved or, you know, find somebody that does it professionally in your area and just ask them, hey, can I shadow you for a little bit? I got to meet some guys when I was starting out early on and, you know, they taught me a few things here and there and now we're colleagues. And so just kind of get involved that way. Oh, that's good. So as we kind of start to wrap things up, do you have any final words of wisdom to share with uh, the listeners out there? 
anybody can do location sound. The reason we get paid is for when things go wrong. So if you educate yourself on as much as you can, then you'll just make yourself invaluable because you'll be able to tackle any challenge that comes up because there's always something. It's sound, you know, as much as I would love to say every take is always perfectly clean. You know, there could be a car or a plane or um, we had at one point a fly that wouldn't stop buzzing around, but you kind of learn how to handle each situation as it comes. Um, and don't be afraid. I know a lot of people that I talk to when they say like, yeah, you know, I wanted to get into sound, but then I like looked at it and I just, I couldn't figure it out. Just kind of take a minute, look at the gear. It's really, it's not as intimidating as it looks. And honestly, it's pretty fun. I agree. <laughs> so cool, man. Well, this has been great. And I appreciate you uh, taking the time. If people wanted to reach out to you, what's the best way to contact you? Uh, so I have an Instagram, which is gfs.sound. And then my email is ferris, F-E-R-R-I-S, at gfssound.com. And that's gfssound.com. All right, great. Well, Ferris Shaheen, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and if you guys are doing some production in the Texas area, the Dallas-Fort Worth region, look them up. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun. And a big thanks to all of our listeners out there. If you'd like us to discuss a particular topic, please send us an email at locationsoundpodcast at gmail.com. We would love for you to subscribe and leave us a comment. We're available on Apple Podcasts and iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, and on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, remember, sound is half the picture.